Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are Matthew Hoppy, the Schalke 20-year-old who's joining his first U.S. men's national team camp this week, and Chris Ivey, the co-founder and director of sports for Heritage Auctions to talk about the skyrocketing market for soccer collectible cards. We've had some great guests lately, including Alejandro Irarigori, Jeff Barger, and Stephen Mandis, among others. So check those out. But first, let's talk some soccer with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, The Dan Lebitard Show, and the Chelsea Miked Up Podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. Great to see you. How are you? Have we had a, a footballing weekend in which every league was decided? I feel like they're usually staggered. We had promotion <laughs> playoffs as well. I mean, what a weekend of soccer action. It's been a lot of fun. And I actually, for the final day of the Premier League, went down the street to my favorite soccer bar, Smithfield, here in New York. Some buddies came. They have great outdoor seating. We're all vaxxed and just had a blast because there were fans of different teams. There were even a bunch of fans of Man United who had a meaningless game today making all this noise who were also chanting at the Liverpool fans because they don't like the Liverpool fans who had more on the line today. And um, I was actually wearing my 1998 Chelsea Marcel Desai shirt uh, and uh, following the Chelsea game, but everything else that was going on just truly fun day and then came home and watched uh the last day in france and italy um had fun yesterday watching the finish in spain so just so much stuff going on right now i mean when you look at this you know these final days in la liga premier league Serie A, league on you got big winners atletico madrid chelsea liverpool Milan, Juventus, Lille. Big losers, Real Madrid, Leicester City, Napoli, and PSG for various reasons. I want to start with Atletico Madrid and Luis Suarez, who ends up scoring the goal that wins them the title because Real Madrid ended up getting the win late in its game. And if Suarez had not completed the comeback against Valladolid, Atletico Madrid would not have won the title. They did win the title. Discarded Luis Suarez, now a meme, crying into his phone on the field. Maybe the star of the weekend, one of them. A pretty incredible story with Suarez. Yeah, I mean, what a turnaround for a player who now kind of further solidifies his value. He kind of had reached a stage where I think probably if not for the pandemic and if not for all these clubs struggling financially – he probably would have gone to MLS or something like that. It probably would have been about the end for him at Barcelona and in kind of high-level competition. But as everyone kind of is trying to fill gaps in a financially solvent way, you look at Sergio Guerrero now going to Barcelona, I think clubs are now going to kind of turn to older players to try and fill in their gaps. Atletico does. And in some respects, he's the perfect Simeone striker. It's kind of a little bit sad that he didn't go there sooner. He fits perfectly in that side and comes up with this incredible moment that I, I mean, in some ways, it is kind of a tip of the cap to Barcelona because it means that Real don't win the title. But how remarkable is it that he's not just a piece, but kind of the piece? There isn't another player in that side that probably contributed more towards them winning the league and holding on in the end because, I mean, in some respects, they were on for a massive collapse. They were 10 points clear with a game in hand and just about got over the line. And Luis Suarez, I mean, we're talking about players with kind of the, the mental 
strength to be able to persevere through what could have been the total collapse after they go out of the Champions League of their season. Suarez would probably be one of the characters most likely to have kind of helped sustain this. Really looking forward to watching Suarez and Cavani playing for Uruguay in their upcoming World Cup qualifiers and the Copa <laughs> America. And we were watching those guys at the 2010 World Cup. You know, yeah. it, it, it's just kind of crazy to me that 11 years later, Death taxes, Cavani, Suarez, and Fernando Muslera in goal for Uruguay. So let's move to the Premier League. Um, In the end, the big spenders made the top four. So Chelsea and Liverpool end up getting in. Leicester City, not one of the big six, not one of the Super League 12, uh, ends up getting fifth. And this was a pretty crazy two-hour period, right? Because there were various points in time where Chelsea was the team out of the top four and then Liverpool and then Leicester. And ultimately, Chelsea loses uh, against Aston Villa but gets saved by Tottenham, which wins 4-2 to two at Leicester. And answer a question for me here. Harry Kane scored a goal today. Uh, for Spurs, big win. Chelsea ends up being the beneficiary of that, finishing in the top four. So they're going to be in Champions League next year. They're got, Chelsea's going to have more income that it knows about now. Does this potentially increase the chances that Harry Kane goes to Chelsea? Well, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's only, I would say, three clubs in England. And and Harry Kane has said in his transfer request that he wants to go, he, want, he wants to stay in England. It's probably only Chelsea and the Manchester clubs that could reasonably afford it, probably, right? So, yeah, I mean, if Chelsea are in the Champions League, which they have, which they are, that would be one of the clubs that Harry Kane would want to go to. I think Chelsea would probably be the last club that Daniel Levy would want to sell to, just because <laughs> you know it's it's in your own city, right? Like it's just yeah. that extra bit of difficulty in, in making that happen just from a pleasing the fan standpoint. So yeah, I would probably say that it has increased the chances because if Chelsea were not in the Champions League, I don't think they'd be in for him. But I, I, I kind of get the feeling that it's going to be one of the two Manchester clubs if this deal does even end up happening because it's going to take north of $130 million, given that Harry Kane still has three years left on his deal. And I just don't know if any club has the appetite to spend that much in the, in the current economic climate. Liverpool, I think we should put into perspective now, the 95th minute header by the goalkeeper, Allison last week, which put Liverpool in a position to make the top four, which they've now done. Um, like you look at what the season Liverpool's had and... It's kind of remarkable they ended up finishing top four. They needed, so they got, what, 26 of their final 30 available points? They basically needed to be perfect down the stretch because they dug themselves such a hole. And fair play to them because, I mean, they're still, I mean, we talked about their center back issues all year. They closed with Reese Williams and Nat Phillips back there. And you would not have thought at the beginning of the season that that would be enough to get you into the Champions League, never mind finishing in third. And given how bad they were in the Champions League first leg against Real Madrid, given, I mean, there was a time where they were on like a point per game for like 14 or 15 Premier League games. That's like relegation form that they were for an entire chunk of their season. And now they're in the Champions League. And it is kind of the ultimate in persevering. It's one of the things that I like to kind of think a lot about now in in the world game because 
Back then, it was like, well, is you know, is the Jurgen Klopp thing run its course? Is it time for change? How much do they need to blow out the the current group of players that are there? And look, I do think they need a squad refresh, no doubt. But these are still some of the very best players in the world. This is still one of the very best teams in the world. And you just keep working and working and working until it turns around. And look at how Manchester City turned around from within this season. Look at how Liverpool turned around from within this season. That squad of players is good enough. And they persevered. And out of nowhere, they managed to put together the form good enough for a 10-game stretch to make the Champions League against all doubts. They needed every one of those points. And it's remarkable that they did it. Yeah, really is. Now, I I do want to ask you, as someone who follows Chelsea closely who has a Chelsea podcast. Does this performance in a, in a losing effort when Chelsea was controlling its own destiny, so they back into the top four, goalkeeper might be hurt. Yeah. Champions League final next Saturday. Are you, are you kind of concerned about this Chelsea situation coming out of this weekend, or do you think it won't matter at all? Well, it's five games without a clean sheet for Chelsea, which was kind of the basis upon which they built their strength. And they have frustrated Manchester City when they played in the FA Cup final in the Premier League. So it's going to have to be that defense. And they're starting to leak a few more goals now. I think Andreas Christensen is a really important piece of what they do. He's been dealing with injury uh, in, in, in the last couple of games, so I think that's definitely a concern that he isn't available. Mendy would certainly be a big part of that, although really their defense is not really built upon spectacular goalkeeping. It's built upon not even allowing goal-scoring opportunities. The one thing that was ultimately going to decide their fate, whether or not they were conceding chances or not, is their inability to finish. I mean, you even go back to that Real Madrid Champions League tie... They could have put it to bed by halftime of the second leg. They could have done the same thing against Porto, but they are really wasteful in front of goal. And it's because they don't really play players who, at least in this season, have been great finishers. Christian Pulisic had a great chance to miss one today, didn't catch it cleanly. Timo Werner has missed chance after chance in this season. Mason Mount is just an inconsistent finisher. And you're kind of relying... Today, the player that needed to get the hat trick for them in terms of the quality of chances that he got was Ben Chilwell. He's a left back, right? (laughs) And in some respects, Chelsea are playing the best attacking football that they can, considering that they're mostly playing defenders or defensive-minded players. The quality of their passing and the chances that they they create are pretty good. They just don't have the high-level finishing in the side to really take advantage of it. And actually, if you look at their stats year over year, despite spending a ton of money on Havertz, Werner, and Ziyech to improve this attack, their attack actually got worse year over year. And so how... Are they going to fix that problem between now and the Champions League final? I imagine there will be an opportunity for Chelsea to beat Manchester City with one chance. I don't have the confidence right now that they'll take it. So one specific question for U.S. fans, I think, in particular, heading into this Champions League final against City next week. Do you think at this point that Christian Pulisic will start the final? I, I See, I don't think he's been especially good down this stretch run of the season. He had a cup, he had a, a nice moment in time where he was playing really well around the time of the Real Madrid second leg in those kind of matches preceding it, which earned him that start. But I don't know if he's been especially good in recent times. I guess the question, I mean, Kai Havertz has been dealing with a little bit of an injury. He did come on as a sub today. But 
I think he's probably just about done enough. He's probably just about been one of Chelsea's best attackers. Again, I just don't think he's in that kind of mood right now where if he got a really good chance, you would expect him to take it. Um, and I think you kind of need as many clinical finishers on the field as possible. Um, I, I don't know kind of, you know, from a tactical standpoint, what their idea is maybe to even hit uh, Manchester City on the counter. You'd probably definitely want Timo Werner in that team. Um, but yeah, I would probably say Tuchel has most trusted Pulisic, Werner, and Mount as the front three. And so I would imagine he'll get a chance. I won't be terribly surprised if he doesn't, though. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And and also, too, I mean, Tuchel, you never quite know who he's going to yeah. pick. for. There's never an obvious 11. So I'm never fully surprised if someone is not included in the attacking He's got Chelsea some wrinkles 11. in him as well. Like, you look at the uh, Real Madrid second leg, and it's actually remained the same since. Reese James is playing in the back three as opposed to wing back, and Aspiliqueta is playing at wing back. So there are definitely wrinkles from within that system, despite how consistent it has been. It's a back three with two wing backs and two holding midfielders in his entire run. Uh, you wonder if, I mean, you probably don't deviate at this point, but I would probably say he is the bigger favorite to make an out-of-nowhere change than even Pep Guardiola is, who is the master of out-of-nowhere changes. Let's see here. What else did I want to talk about? I want to talk about Italy. Uh, we had Juventus and Milan get into the top four and into the Champions League for next year. It's been a while since Milan's been in the Champions League, so good to see them back. Juve weren't quite sure if they were going to get in, but they get a, a helping hand from Napoli, which doesn't seal the deal at home, ends up tying Hellas Verona. So Napoli ends up being fifth on the outs, does not qualify for Champions League. Juve ends up in next season's Champions League. But this is a, a, a but question here. Will Ronaldo and Andrea Pirlo be with Juve in Champions League next season? Well, the Pirlo one, I think, would have been decided today if they didn't make it. I don't. I, you can't, as a Juve manager, not qualify for the Champions League. But now that they have, I'm more inclined to think he'll get another opportunity to go again. I think they kind of want to build something in the longer term with Pirlo. But that's where it comes into contrast with the Ronaldo thing. Because Cristiano Ronaldo is a win-now kind of player. And you have to build your team around Cristiano Ronaldo. And... I don't know if Juve are prepared to do that even still. And I was really shocked that he didn't play on the final day. And that for me is kind of an indication that maybe things are deteriorating there uh, between Cristiano Ronaldo and Juventus. And not only did he not play, but then Juve probably played one of their best matches of the season, uh, sweeping aside, uh, was it, uh, it was uh, Bologna today. So uh, I, I, I can't imagine that he's there. I guess my question would be, what does Cristiano, what does Cristiano Ronaldo do from here? right? Because as I said, you're going to have to build your thing around him. I can't like, for me, the only team that would make some measure of sense would be PSG from a financial standpoint. But how ridiculous would that team be? Neymar, Mbappe, Ronaldo, and a bunch of other players around him? Like that doesn't, like if I'm PSG, I'm looking to build a real team, not a team with Neymar, Mbappe, and Ronaldo in it. Where does he go and what is a team like? Can can you build a Champions League winning side around Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo even still? Because his run at Juve has been surrounded by fairly substantive Champions League failures. So I don't know what the next thing looks like for Cristiano Ronaldo at this point. It's a really good question. I mean, 
in the economy, I think, is going to have an influence on this this summer, like the soccer economy. Like, are there other teams that are able and willing to pay Cristiano Ronaldo what Juventus is contractually obligated to pay him next season? And there may not be any. There may. I mean, you mentioned PSG. I you know maybe, but. I don't think that would necessarily be a, a good thing for that team. And so I, 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 it does become an issue. And it makes me wonder, you know, that, and maybe that's also why we've seen Sporting Lisbon thrown around a little bit, you know, the possibility of going back to the club of his youth. Uh, we've seen people come out and say, no, that's not going to happen. Um, I still think at some point, Inter Miami. Uh, would be a team that would certainly be a possibility for Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, LAFC would actually make some sense to me. They kind of need a DP goal scorer as well to lead their line. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to think at some point a, a view towards, I mean, he would be, he would grow his business and he's probably has looked at the idea of being big in America for a long time. Um, but I don't know if now is the time. We just talked about earlier the notion that maybe older players are getting a longer look in. But again, that money is just so profound. I mean, if you're Manchester United, are you interested in that? I don't know if you want to break up what's a promising young attacking group uh, that has evolved year over year. They just finished second. I don't know if that, like, I just don't know what the next option for him is. I mean, there's always going to be a team that probably views it as, as an economic opportunity. If there's any club that would, it would be Manchester United. But I, I really am, it's a complete wild card for me. And I mean, Portugal makes some sense, but again, financially, you know, I think sporting was in pretty dire straits even before the pandemic. Um, they, I think they had to sell Bruno Fernandes to kind of basically be solvent. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know who economically is going to view that as an opportunity or if, you know, maybe the Juve experience has kind of scarred some other teams like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not sure you want this. Also in terms of MLS moves over the years, what we've seen, and I'm thinking like of Thierry Henry coming to the Red Bulls after the 2010 World Cup, is the biggest European stars often want to wait until a World Cup happens and then make their move to MLS. But this next World Cup is not happening in June, July. It's happening in November, December. And so after that World Cup, there's going to be another half of a European season. So whether it's Ronaldo or whether it's Lionel Messi... I think both these guys could end up in MLS, but it might not be until the summer of 23, which is a ways off. That gets into the age range where people start calling you a retirement league again. I mean, these I think these two players are the exception um, where like you do it no matter if you can get Messi and Ronaldo in your league, you do it no matter what. Um, but yeah, I mean that like that's at an age where it's I mean you're on your very I mean already I I, I was looking at uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's defensive numbers uh, on Football Reference, the soccer version, not the American football version. They have some uh, stats from Statsbomb, and they compare Ronaldo to forwards in the other top five leagues in Europe. And Cristiano Ronaldo is in the first percentile of pressures from a forward. <laughs> that that's for, for, from a numerical standpoint. That means you're in the bottom one percent of people who put in hard yards defensively. I just think that's that's a really tough sell because so many teams try and build their style around pressing, or at the very least, have right. some kind of pressing from the front movement. 
I think at the very highest level, it's tough to build around. I think really at any level at this point, it's hard to put together kind of that slow, deliberate style of play and kind of playing from a deeper mid-block or keep the kind of possession that you want to keep in order to accommodate that. So I don't know how many teams would kind of be be able to build a winning side around a forward who just does no work. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I want to finish up with some big news in the U.S. soccer world, and that was the announcement Sunday that the U.S. Soccer Federation is not going to continue its deal, a 20-year-long relationship with Soccer United Marketing as its main marketer, uh, and just like a very lucrative relationship hand-in-hand uh, hand over the last two decades. Also, rife with some conflicts that have drawn a lot of criticism over the years, and a lot of this came up in the 2018 U.S. Soccer presidential election. Essentially, Soccer United Marketing is owned by the MLS owners and is a very profitable business that has helped offset the losses incurred by actual MLS teams over the years. And and yet it also produced some, uh, some conflicts over the years where it made people question if U.S. soccer wasn't always doing things that were totally in U.S. soccer's interest because they were trying to benefit MLS and the MLS owners who they were financially tied to in Soccer United marketing. And so this is also very clear, and I already confirmed this, that it means that when the next TV deal starts for U.S. soccer and for MLS in 2023, they will no longer bundle the U.S. soccer and the MLS rights together. And that's something that U.S. soccer had done for MLS to help MLS over the years by saying to television companies, if you buy the U.S. soccer rights, you got to buy all the MLS rights too. That's no longer going to be the case. So that's a sign that MLS thinks they can sell their own rights and have them be valuable enough but we'll also find out if U.S. soccer might have been leaving money on the table over the years and what they get for their next rights deal. Um, so all that's very intriguing. And I don't know. I was wondering what you made of it. Well, I, I do think – so first off, a couple of things. Uh, my, my feeling is that I do think now at this point, MLS and U.S. soccer probably have competing interests in what they would want out of television deals. Like I'm not sure – I think in the last deal, like MLS was probably in it just to have, just to be on ESPN, be on Fox, be on Univision so that they can kind of build out an expansion play. But I think the TV landscape has changed for MLS in a way that it hasn't changed for U.S. soccer. I think now with all these streaming players in the game probably competing to do something with MLS, my guess would be that streaming will probably be the predominant, the predominant source of revenue for MLS in their next TV deal. So, if you're MLS, you want to kind of be on one of those platforms and, you know, probably from the money. And in my opinion, I think what MLS can most afford right now is basically how CBS treats the Champions League. Comprehensive coverage. You know you're getting a studio show for every game. You know that every game is going to be available in one place. And they treat it with weight, right? They've devoted resources. They've hired people. They've turned it into a big property, even on a streaming platform. They're the first streaming platform that has really done coverage big. And I think that's why, I mean, on top of the increase in, in rights, that Syria probably looked towards CBS and said, well, we want to be there. And C CBS is putting a legitimate foot forward that I, as someone who is a vested interest in MLS growing and really, and just wants our soccer league to be bigger, 
I would like for MLS to get that kind of treatment because it's the only American kind of domestic sports league that probably doesn't get coverage like that. The NHL gets really good coverage from NBC. There's pregame and there's postgame and they have personalities and all that. It probably is the highest level league that doesn't have that. So in my view, I think these two interests have probably diverged. Where U.S. soccer, if I were them, I'd be looking to, to put my games on network television. That's where a lot of uh, kind of the, of these big events are going. And if you're U.S. soccer, you just want to be kind of the biggest thing possible to the entire nation. The, the second thing that I found interesting is something that probably you can shed more light on, which is how this relationship formed in the first place. My understanding of it is that essentially... U.S. soccer could not find a place to put the World Cup on television, never mind U.S. soccer games. And so MLS kind of had to do this in order to create a source of revenue. This is kind of a relationship that was born out of necessity. And I guess it is, I guess, kind of cool that now both Soccer United Marketing and U.S. soccer can kind of stand on their own two feet. But this is kind of the end of an era in that these two entities no longer need each other in a way that they probably did before. I mean, the origin story of Soccer United Marketing, and I've written about this over time, is for the 2002 World Cup, Soccer United Marketing bought the television rights in English for the United States and then sold, uh, or then, you know, ESPN, that was a time buy on ESPN, but Soccer United Marketing sold or got the ads for, for all of that stuff. And so that was a very different type, even though the 2002 World Cup was shown on ESPN, very different situation from the 2010 and 2014 World Cups on ESPN, where ESPN bought those rights from FIFA and had more incentive to actually promote and did, did an amazing job with them. But like the origin story of Soccer United Marketing was television rights for the World Cup it morphed out of that over time to the point where Soccer United Marketing did these deals with U.S. Soccer, which allowed U.S. Soccer to have guaranteed revenue per year that Soccer United Marketing was responsible for and covered the shortfall if they didn't get there. So when the U.S. men failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, it was less of a shock to the income of U.S. soccer because they had the guaranteed income as part of their deal with Soccer United Marketing. So um, U.S. soccer is going to go build this all in-house now. And so a lot of that's connected to Will Wilson, the new CEO, fairly new CEO of U.S. soccer, who has expertise in this area from over the years and other people in U.S. soccer now who weren't there before. And we'll have to wait and see if U.S. soccer can be successful at building this because U.S. soccer sort of been looked at as this mom and pop organization uh, that now has a lot of money coming in. And are they going to be able to transform themselves into a 21st century organization? This is the big thing now. Will they be able to pull this off with this announcement? Another thing I would say is the reason for the timing of this announcement of the separation after 22 of uh, U.S. soccer and some is we're about right now to enter into this exclusive window of MLS has this window where they're going to negotiate with their existing rights holders for the new television package that starts in 2023. And then 
the window's gonna end several weeks later and then MLS will be able to talk to any other potential bidders, not just the current uh, rights holders. So that could include CBS, that could include Amazon, that could include anybody. And my guess is the MLS is gonna wanna test out the market and see what's out there. And you know, there's any number of decisions that they could make is, you know, did they decide to have all the MLS broadcast on one platform or do they split up uh, the rights to, you know, to different platforms? Do, you know, how many years do they want to do the contract? The current contract has been eight years. Um, we just saw the Spanish league do an eight year deal with ESPN, which is longer than any European league has ever done with the U.S. outlet that I know of. You know, usually those are like three year deals. Um, and so, you know, what does MLS decide to do with all of that? I would also point out that the U.S. soccer rights, which are now going to be sold on their own, not connected to MLS, because the U.S. is hosting the Men's World Cup in 2026, there's no World Cup qualifiers. And, and those are often the marquee games, the home World Cup qualifiers as part of that rights deal. Is that what it, it, it completely... Uh... Probably a question I should know the answer to. Are the women's national team rights baked into that, or is this just for the men's national team? Like, that that rights period over that cycle. Yeah, it's the men's and women's national okay. teams. Now That's probably where the value is right now. Right. Well, personally, I would also love to know if, if, if U.S. soccer sold the, the men's national team rights separately from the women's rights, I would love to see what the numbers would be for the two, because I literally don't know. So... You know, interesting times, but that was very big news. Wanted to mention that. We also have two interviews here today, so we're going to get to those in a second. But thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break. This is the final week of the Copa Libertadores group stage, and you can stream all the games on Fanatis, live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Matthew Hoppy. Our guest now is Matthew Hoppy. The 20-year-old American forward is finishing his first season with the first team of Schalke, and he had a hat trick in a January game for the team and has a team leading six goals along with one assist in the league. Hoppy just got called up to his first camp with the U.S. men's national team ahead of its friendly at Switzerland on May 30th. Matthew, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, and thank you for, for having me here. I'm happy to be here and happy to, uh, to talk with you about, about this journey. So It's a pretty remarkable journey, and I, and I definitely want to get into everything you've done in your story to, to get to this point, but... I guess to start, I would say it's been a really interesting season at Schalke. You came out of nowhere to score a hat trick in January. 
What was it like to experience that sudden surge of global attention for you? I mean, it was it was crazy. Like after the the first goal that I got, I was uh, almost in tears. I was gonna gonna cry on the field, but I, I kept it together. And uh, it took me a while to to actually realize what happened to to process it. And uh, yeah, I still think about it. I get I get chills thinking about it. I watch the videos sometimes about it, and um, yeah, it's a it's a good feeling. And uh, on that day, all over the the social media, it was it was a post about the hat trick. So I was. That was a special day, and that was cool for me. Nice. I mean, that those weren't the only goals you've scored, obviously, this season. Have you sensed, since you emerged in the Bundesliga, that teams are starting to focus even more of their defending strategies on you after all that happened? Yeah, so um, before, they wouldn't really watch me. Like, they wouldn't really, they didn't know much about me, about the, the runs I like to make and the um, even my name, but then after I scored the, the hat trick, I heard the teams calling me by my name, and like the center backs were were being more physical with me, and were um, yeah, I guess going harder on me, which I guess is a it's it's cool because then I see that they they respect me more, they see me as a threat, and that's um that's nice to to experience as a player, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. Um... You know, a guy with a big name like Klaas-Jan Huntelaar came back to Schalke this season. He's had a really good career uh, at club level and also with the Dutch national team. How how was that? How how would you describe your relationship with him in particular? Did did you learn anything from him while he was there? Yeah, he's he's an amazing guy, an amazing uh, player, and an amazing person. And um, whenever I have any any questions or um, Say if I if I did something wrong in training, he'll come up to me. He'll he'll speak to me and try and help me. And um, it's always it's always positive with him. He he loves the game, you know. And uh, even at 37, 38 years old, he loves to to just just play like like a kid, you know. Nice. Um, in in terms of, I want to get a little bit into the story of how you got to Schalke in the first place because. It's it's a really cool journey, like you said. When you tell the story of this journey you've made, how do you tell it? What do you say? Um, I mean, how far do you want me to go back? Like <laughs> all the way from the beginning, or what? I mean, I know that you were with the the Barcelona Academy group, um, but I also know that like you were planning to go to San Diego State, and you know, obviously, you didn't. Things some things changed, like. How did you didn't play for youth national teams? Like, if you want to fill me in on just how unlikely this journey was for you, that would be cool. Yeah, so um, I mean, I started playing playing uh, like baseball, uh, flag football, soccer, like like all the the normal guys growing up, and then um, yeah, and one year I was doing doing all those sports at the same time, you know. So it was crazy, and then my parents eventually said I have to choose a sport and I think I was the the best at soccer so I stuck with that or um should I say say soccer or football because everyone out here call it football so I'll, I'll call it that <laughs> and then uh yeah so I I chose football and I um stuck with it I trained I was on at one point three different teams growing up and I would just just play as much as possible and I trained with my dad whenever I didn't have training so um he obviously was a, a big influence in my in my development and um, yeah, and then I went to my my first academy team, my first club team, at the age of 
11 or 12 or something to Golden State. Mm-hmm. And I was on that team for a few years. And then I went over to, to LA Galaxy. And I was there for a season. And then uh, things didn't work out there. I got, I got cut from the team. Wow. And then I went, I went over to Strikers, a local team. And then they gave me my first experience, international experience in Germany with um, Don Ebert. He, mm-hmm. he brought me out here with a few other players. And then, um, yeah, it was obviously, it was a dream of mine because I've been, uh, I've been dreaming to play in Europe. You know, that's, that's every, every, I think, American football player dream, you know. And then, uh, yeah, once I, once I came out to, to Germany with him, I realized I wanted to, to play out here. And then um, I transferred over to, to Barca Academy. And then in the first season... We got third place in the the national championship in the USSDA, and that was a, a big accomplishment for us. And then while I was there in the in the summer playoffs, that's where I met my agent. He was um, scouting other people on the field, and then he saw me. He saw something in me, and he he believed in me, and he's uh, believed in me ever, ever since. So I have a, a lot of uh, love for him, you know. Yeah, and in the opportunity with Schalke, how did that come about? So um, I went on a few trials before, um, one in the Christmas time and then two in the summertime. And uh, Schalke was my last trial. And then when I went there, I realized that this is the the place where I want to be, where I want to, um, you know, spend spend my next few years and to, to develop there because they have a, an amazing coach, amazing youth system, and they, they're known for developing great talents like, like Ozil and, and Neuer and... Um, so yeah, it was obviously a no-brainer. Once once they offered me a spot on the team, I accepted it like that same day. And then um, yeah, I came out here my first season, the U19 season, and uh, it was a difficult difficult time. I had to to develop to the culture. I had to learn a lot about the language, the football out here, my my game. You know, everything is different out here. So. Moving over from from California to Germany, it was a a big cultural shift. So, yeah, no, definitely. I've spent a fair amount of time in in Western Germany in recent years, including at Schalke. I came out to visit Weston McKenney a couple of years ago there. But you know, huge football tradition. Um, the fans are really uh, hardcore, and there's a lot of them, and. I remember reading recently the German national team over the years, over the decades, you mentioned Neuer and Ozil, the German national team, Schalke's academy has produced a lot of the players that have ended up on the German national team. And there's only about three or four academies in the country, including like Bayern and Dortmund and Schalke that have, have produced most of the national team players, it seems like. Um, and, I, I guess one question I've got is I had read that at one point you weren't like, as you were developing, you were more of a midfielder than a, a scoring forward. Like you preferred being a midfielder, didn't want to be a forward. Is that accurate? Yeah. So um, I was a midfielder my whole life. And then I go on trial or I go like for the trial for the U17 Barcelona team in Casa Grande. And then uh, there were, on the first day, there was a scrimmage. And then uh, my name wasn't on the list. I was supposed to be on the bench or something. And then 
Um, they had the, the starting lineup all posted on the wall with the players, and then the forward for the team didn't show up. And then the coach just put me in at forward, and then in my first training I scored like three goals in the game, and then ever since there he he kept me at striker. I, I made the team as a striker, and I was uh, for the next two years at striker, and then I kept telling him, put me down in midfield, put me down. And then um, my coach, Sean McCafferty, and he's all like, no, you're a striker. You're a striker. I'm, I'm going to keep you up here. And I was I was getting mad at him, but um, I'd always give him a hard time. But, you know, it worked out. He he uh, was able to see, you know, my best attributes and was able to, to bring it out in me. And, uh, yeah, I was top scorer for two years in a row with him. So Interesting. Is there a lesson, by the way? It, it, it strikes me that you getting cut by the L.A. Galaxy – academy and now look at what you're doing for Schalke like what sort of lesson should we take from that or or should young players take from that if they're really hurt when they get cut by somebody like it was obviously it was hard at the time but um you know it was in my best interest they were saying that if I were there I I wouldn't play so um I need to go somewhere where I can play especially as a young player so I went to Irvine Strikers and their local team, and they're they're a good team. You know, I met some of my my best friends over there. They're they're great guys. You know, the coaches and the the players are all amazing people. And I was able to play a lot, and I was able to develop my game a lot, and then play against older players too with over there. So it worked out, I think, perfectly for me. Yeah, it, it's also interesting to me once you get to Schalke that. You know, you play with the under-19 team, and you, you didn't score a lot of goals, and then you are suddenly scoring goals for the senior team. You know, how did that, how did that work? How did you emerge to the point where you even got the opportunity to play for the first team? Yeah, so the, the whole story behind that is pretty crazy, I think, how it all worked out perfectly for me. But, um, yeah, I came out in the U19 season. I was... Uh, scoring a lot of goals in preseason and then, you know, being away from home so far, like that, that took a toll on me, I think. And then I had to, like I said before, learn a lot about um, both football and, you know, everything, life in Germany itself. So, um, and even though the goals weren't there, I was still doing doing the right things. I was still working hard, still, uh, you know, doing doing what I can to, to you know, be in the right position to, to get the opportunities, you know. And um, yeah, the the a big difference about uh, football in America and Germany is the the tactical differences. I think, and um, yeah, I had to learn a lot of the the tactics, which were were new to me. You know, it wasn't like everyone in America just plays a four three three. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like five three two. You know, four four two. Sometimes you know, it was different. So I had to to learn different different formations, different tactics, and. Um, different things like that, and that was that was hard. It took some time, but I was able to to get it down eventually, you know. And then, uh, yeah, I was playing in the U19s, and then in around March, um, on my birthday, on March 13th, um, it was a I think a Thursday, and then um, we were supposed to play against Dortmund on Saturday for the Derby, and that was supposed to be a huge game. Like we were all preparing for it, and then um, the coach calls me. While I'm in my room, and then he says, um, "Like everything's canceled, the game's canceled uh, because of the coronavirus. Everything is shut down. You need to um, go back to America, um, spend the time with your family, 
and then I'll call you. I'll call you if I get any news. I think you'll be back here in two weeks. So just enjoy the time with your family. And then, um, yeah, I called. I called the coach every week, mm-hmm. and then uh, two weeks turned into four months. So I spent four months at home, and um, yeah, I, I think I took advantage of those four months. I was uh, I was training every day. Well, at first I was. Um, I was I was a little uh you know just trying to spend time with my family you know, and then um, eventually once I was there for for three or four weeks I was like like I think I'm gonna be out here for a while so I need to, um, you know I need to, like stay on top of my training I need to go back to Germany and be ready for my my opportunity, and then I started waking up at six in the morning every morning with my friend Luca, and then we would we would train and then because um, it was it was really hot at that time like if you were to, to go later in the day and we would train um probably until six until nine and then i'd be able to give my legs a break and then i'd go train again at around um one in the afternoon or four depending on on um you know what i was doing that day and then i'd go to the gym late at night so i was doing two to three sessions every day for for three months and then i came back to germany and then um yeah, I'd lit it up in preseason. I was scoring a lot of goals, and then um, I didn't play that much with the under twenty threes. Uh, I would always go on as a as a sub, and that was difficult for me because I I wanted to play, and I thought um, you know that I that I should be in, you know. But I kept working hard and stayed positive, and then yeah, I get the chance with the first team. So nice. I mean, it's a it's a great story. Um, I I guess. I'm wondering what it must have been like to have so much excitement that, you know, this is your big career break. You know, you're you're getting to play with the Schalke first team. You're scoring goals. People are paying attention to you. You're a young guy. And yet you're also playing for a team that's losing a lot of games and uh, and unfortunately got ended up getting relegated. Uh, and Schalke is a club with a, a proud history of all the players who've been there before. Was just in Champions League a couple of seasons ago in the elimination rounds playing Manchester City. Um, what was that like for you to experience like this career breakthrough, which is you know such a an exciting thing, but then just having to deal with your teammates with the losing? Yeah, so... Um... I'm going to I'm going to go back to the to the start of it when I first got called up. Um I was training with the under 23s. We had a game on Saturday. And um it was Monday at training and it was just a normal training day. I thought it was just uh everything was normal and then the coach comes up to me on on uh on Monday. He says you're going to be training with the first team tomorrow. And then um I was like I was surprised because I I wasn't playing that much with the second team, you know, but I was I was still doing all the little things right, always trying to do extra training, always um, doing what I can to get better. And then um, on Tuesday was my first training with uh, um, the first team. And then um, there was some, some unfortunate like events that happened. Uh, um, my friend Gonzalo, he got, he got injured and I met a spot opened up for me. And uh, in the in the next training on um, Wednesday, I figured out that I was going to be in the in the roster for the game, and then on Thursday, um, I figured out I was going to be starting in the game. So it, it changed within the span of of three days, where um, 
I was not playing with the under 23s too much. I wasn't starting, and then I I do really really well in practice, and then I I'm starting with the first team that the next weekend. So, and then um, yeah, it was obviously difficult, you know, because the the team was in a tough position. Um, you know, we were we were uh, desperate to get a win, and um, you know it's difficult to to lose the games. You know, we all we all want to win. We're all doing our our best. To, to fight for the team, to fight for this club, and um, it's just not working out. Nothing's working out for us. We have um, a lot of injuries. We have a lot of, uh, yeah, just a lot of injuries, and it, nothing was working out. So it's been it's been difficult in that end. When I visited there, I guess it was two years ago. We went to a training session for the first team, and I don't know how many of our listeners know this, but in Germany, as opposed to other European countries. In Germany, they actually let the fans come to training sessions sometimes. And, you know, you would never see Manchester City allowing fans to come to training sessions, for example. But this happens at different German clubs, and it's a good thing. It's part of, like, the the power of the people, I think, in in the fans in Germany and part of why Germany has the biggest... Uh, attendances of any league in the world. Um, but it's also different. And and for the players, it must be different. And I guess what I'm wondering is there was one particular incident after a game uh, a, a little while back here where this became public that there were some angry fans who met the team bus when you got back from a game and some of the players got chased. Uh, by the fans and it was kind of scary to to see like how did you experience that yourself what was that like well first off the like like you said before the the fans are like like amazing out here you know where um you know they're passionate the especially Shopka the club is, is run by the by the fan the fan base and they're they're um you know they're they're the ones who are who are in charge? They're the ones who watch us week in and week out and, and support us no matter no matter the highs or the lows, you know. And um, yeah, they. I, I remember last year when I was with the U19s, I would I would watch a few trainings and then people would be lined up just to give the players high fives when they're walking to training, and that was cool. And uh, yeah, I went to to a few games last year, and the it was just crazy inside the stadium. So the Schalke is like a, a really special club with regards to the the fans. It's the I think one of the best clubs in the world for that. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been able to play with fans or to to train with fans. So it's been I've been missing out on that. But um, yeah, the experience after the the game it was it was a, a crazy one. But um, you know we. We got relegated, and uh, we were expecting them to to be upset. You know, this is their their life. You know, they're passionate about this club, and and they love this club just like like we do. And we we let them down. You know, just were you personally okay that night? Yeah, personally, nothing nothing happened to me. I was um, unharmed, but um, yeah, it was it was. I can't I can't say much about it, but. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I just, I, I was thinking about you when I saw those news reports, I guess is all I'm saying. Um, I was okay, though. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and, you know, I, I, we're seeing these reports uh, occasionally that there are some pretty big name clubs that are interested in you, in potentially buying you. When you see those reports, what, what goes through your mind? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously uh, it's nice to to see that like some of the top clubs in the world are are looking at me. They're interested in me, and uh, yeah, it's obviously like it's flattering as a player, you know. But I think my main focus right now is just to to finish the season out, and then the next main focus will be to to go to my first national team camp. So um, yeah, I can't think about that too much because uh, you know it's, it's it's not where I'm at right now, you know. Yeah, I want to talk about the national team camp. I mean, you we're talking on Thursday, May 20th. They literally just announced it today. Um, our, our episode is coming out on Monday, the 24th. Um, yeah, what kind of discussions have you had with Greg Berhalter, the U.S. national team coach, in recent months? Yeah, so, um, well, to start off, I've, I've been in contact with uh, the under-20 coaches, um, and then throughout the the quarantine time from March until June or July, we had a, a group chat and then all the under 20 players, we would all, all message in there and uh, try and bond at that time because we were, we were supposed to play in the under 20 World Cup except that got canceled. So then um, that was my initial first contact with the national team. And then... Um, my agent's been in, in contact with Greg and then I spoke to him on the phone a few times and I've messaged him a few times and uh yeah, it's all been it's all been positive. And I'm I'm looking forward to the plans he has for me in the future and um yeah, my, my career with the national team. What are some of the things you're most looking forward to with your first senior national team camp coming up? I'm just excited to meet all the guys and to you know, be able to to build that bond with them and to you know, represent my country. It's on. It's obviously an honor. It's something I've been dreaming of for a long time, and now it's now it's finally coming true. And um, you know, it's special because I'm I'm making my debut like with the the first team. You know, it's it's uh, crazy. So, was there a really cool moment maybe with your your family, your parents, when you were able to share the news about your senior national team call up? Yeah. So, um, well, they they kind of knew about it. Like, you know, at the same time as me because. My agent does a, a really good job of, of keeping us all in the loop. He calls me he calls me every day, you know, so um calls my parents every day. He's a amazing guy. So um yeah, I was obviously obviously happy and um yeah, they were they were just as happy for me too, so nice. And I guess just to wrap up here, I, I'd be curious to know, like what do you want to achieve in your career? Have you thought about that much? Yeah, I mean I have um some some short term goals and some long term goals, but um, I want to be the the best player I can be. I want to be a top player for both my club and my country, and um, yeah, I just want to want to get a lot of goals and to you know play in the the top tournaments like Champions League and um, you know play at the the top level. So those are those are my goals. I don't want to want to limit myself. I want to you know dream big. So. Matthew Hoppy is a 20-year-old American forward now finishing his first full season with Schalke. He is joining the U.S. men's national team ahead of its friendly at Switzerland on May 30th. Matthew, congratulations on everything you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, here's my interview with Chris Ivey. The market for sports collectibles has caught fire over the past year, And lately, that market surge has been coming to soccer. 
1979, Diego Maradona Panini stickers sold for a soccer record of almost $560,000 last month. And this month, a 1958 Pele Alifa Bolige rookie card sold for $372,000, a 182% increase over the exact same card and grade sold just five months earlier. Our guest now is Chris Ivey. He's the co-founder and director of sports for Heritage Auctions, which staged the recent auction for that Pele card. Chris, great to have you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So before we get into soccer specifically, I'm curious to learn more about why the sports collectibles market has had such a boom over the last year. What's going on out there that has caused this? It's a confluence of a lot of different events. I think uh, it started out as a little bit of boredom, right? People were stuck at home during the pandemic and, um, you know, didn't, we're look, we're getting into old hobbies, uh, for example. So we started to see some, some growth at that point. And I think there's economic factors involved. Uh, I think there's nostalgic factors, definitely. Uh, a lot of the people that we see jumping in right now are kind of, you know, I don't know about you. I grew up, you know, born in the seventies, grew up in the eighties. Um, you know, the, the, the card boom in the eighties was, was epic. You know, there were card shows every weekend and, um, kids and, and going to shows with their fathers and buying, selling and trading. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I obviously caught the bug. I still do it, uh, lucky enough to do it for a living now running a sports collectibles auction house. Um, but a lot of people our age did that. And, uh, and so so I think a lot of those people were, you know, with the pandemic stuck at home and kind of getting back into it and enjoying it. And I think there's uh, there's definitely economic factors as well. We're seeing growth in all types of hard assets and heritage auctions deals in 40 different collectible categories. I just handle the sports and we're seeing it definitely in sports, but we're seeing it across all categories is that um, people are, um, you know, they see inflation coming down the pipe and one way to hedge against inflation is to is to purchase um, hard assets that are um, you know easily you know tradable and sellable down the road and th this certainly falls into that category as well so it's just an alternative asset class for a lot of people that you know they may feel like their investments and in, you know traditional investments in Wall Street and real estate and those type of things are a little bit maxed out so this is an alternative investment for them to put some money into and have fun with it at the same time so we're kind of seeing all those different things come together to to realize what we're seeing now which is just huge growth over the last 12 to 18 months. You know, I am part of that group that was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. I used to spend a ton of my time and lawn mowing money at the local baseball card shop, you know, and and uh, have a lot of great memories of that. But I got to admit, I, like present day, what's happening right now, I'm not as on top of. So I'm, I'm learning a lot from you during this interview and, and appreciate that. But it's a topic that is close to me from over the years. Um, so as I understand it, prior to this past December, there had been only five sports cards in history to sell for more than $1 million at a public auction. And in the past five months, your house alone has sold six cards for $1 million or more for athletes like Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Tom Brady, Reggie Jackson, and the famous Hannes Wagner T206 card. Do you think this surge is only going to continue? Um, 
there is definitely i think that the basics for the market are strong i i think that the that it is going to continue um certainly no market goes up perpetually right there are corrections but i think the foundation for what we're looking at uh is very strong you know they've been uh psa has been grading uh sports cards since 1992 so we're going on 30 years um, so a lot of the, you know, people start looking at the population reports and seeing how many examples of each card have been graded and how, how many are in top condition. So those condition rarities are the, are the ones that are really experiencing that exponential growth and that high growth. For example, you know, we sold the OPG Wayne Gretzky rookie uh, from 1979 back in December. Uh, it's one of only two examples that are graded PSA 10. Um, and those are you know, notoriously tough cards. They had rough edges, a lot of chipping, hard to find them centered, all those type of issues. So, you know, out of all the millions of examples that were printed by OPG, it's narrowed down to these two examples that are the best of the best remaining. And that, you know, that rookie sold for 1.4 million, just under 1.4 million. Wow. Um, you know, and that's, you know, and other Gretzky examples are selling, you know, lesser condition. You can still buy one for five to $10,000, but that's just an example of the condition rarity. And one thing that you mentioned on all those, you know, all those examples of players that are selling for seven figures, you know, you mentioned Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky, right? Uh, you know, Pele, we're going to talk about. I mean, they're all considered the greats of the game. Um, mm -hmm. So people are focusing on the greatest of all time, the best of the best, and then the highest condition examples. And, um, you know, the more people that grow up and, you know, get involved in this, that's the beauty of sports is that, you know, kids grow up you know, following teams, following, playing sports, following sports, maybe following the same teams that their parents follow. And, and so, you know, unlike some other collectibles, maybe like stamps, for example, or, you know, uh, other, other categories, which maybe don't have as much interest through the future generations. I think we're lucky to be in a sports category that uh, it kind of continues from generation to generation. So, you know, with that, with that foundation, I think we're in a good spot to continue. In this market surge that we're seeing right now are sports cards that are decades old, similar to the interest that we're seeing in present day produced NFTs. And I know NFTs are totally different, but mm -hmm. are they completely different markets? Is, are there, is there any overlap there? So there is, it's interesting because, you know, we've always previously, you know, prior to two or three years ago, we focused on vintage cards only because that's where the mm -hmm. value was, right? So we really solely focused on 1980 and prior. Um, but then as, you know, the modern market started to evolve more and, and, you know, the value started to surge, we obviously started focusing on the more modern cards as well. So they've, the modern cards have seen a huge surge, but they're not leaving vintage cards behind. Their vintage cards are, ha had a strong base and, and we're seeing really strong values to begin with. And, and, you know, as this continues, those, those prices continue to, uh, to increase as well. So now it's just, you know, there is some crossover there. I, I've dealt with some collectors that do both. They love some of the modern stuff and then they buy, you know, Mickey Mantle rookies and Honus Wagner cards as well. Um, and I think it's, an, it's a little bit of an evolution, right? I mean, I think probably when you and I were going to shows in the 80s, we cared about the players we saw playing. So we were buying, you know, Mike Schmidt and Don Mattingly and George Brett and Dave Winfield and, you know, all those, all those greats of the Hall of Famers from, you know, they were playing in the day. 
but with, you know, with learning the game and understanding collectibles and whatnot, at, at least for me, that's what opened the door for me to learn about Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and, and, the, and the greats that came before. And that's the great thing about collectibles. So I think you see a lot of that, you know, in current day as well as kids get into involved in this to, to get Luka Doncic and, uh, and Zion Williamson cards mm-hmm. and, uh, and Fernando Tatis Jr. And you name it. Right. And, and then, you know, from that, they start learning about the, the, players that came before and, and, a, and a history of the game and the love for collecting. So soccer cards and collectibles are relatively new to this market surge. Why is that, you know, and, and what's sort of the history of like, has soccer, have soccer cards been as prevalent as cards for baseball and, and sports like U S sports, I guess. So, yeah, it's interesting, right? Cause I mean, everyone, Baseball is a uniquely American sport, and it's the oldest, you know, really one of the oldest continuous American sports. It's kind of birthed here and and grew here, and and so baseball cards are the are the backbone of the sports card market uh, in, in the United States. And um, on the on the flip side, you know, soccer is one of the most is the most popular sport worldwide, um, but not as popular here in the United States, and so. You know, I think collectibles, at least the collectibles in the, in the in the United States, was you know really based on baseball and football and the sports that we focused on primarily. But given the the popularity of soccer around the world, you know, it, it, everyone can see that that you know this is something that's that's going to to continue to grow. Soccer's not going anywhere, obviously. It's uh, and so I think it's 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 an interesting dichotomy, right? You know baseball being a u.s sport and soccer being a worldwide sport and i think collectibles is mainly i mean at least what we focus on is is you know is u.s based um so soccer it didn't have a huge huge following soccer collectibles that is didn't have a huge following in the u.s but that's that's starting to change with what we're seeing now and especially with the prices we're seeing okay so that specific diego maradona panini from 1979 why was that card the one that went for so much more than anything else from soccer, including Pele? Because uh, it's considered his rookie card. So the rookie card's always sought after. Um, and then it's just a, um, a a rarity issue. You know, I think there's only of the 58 Pele card, 1958 Pele card that we mentioned, I think that there's less than 70 that have been graded total. And I think that the Maradona, there's even a lot fewer than that. So uh, especially at a higher grade level. So I think that that uh, condition rarity and the rarity of the card in general is what drives the price even higher. And that 1958 Pele card that you just sold, your house did, who actually produced that card that sold for $372,000. Oh, you're going to maybe pronounce it, huh? It's Ali Fabalogé. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> Ali Fabalogé, I'll say. <laughs> but uh, is are, are, you know who was producing those cards in in 1958? Is that like do you know anything about the background of it or or like anything like that? I actually don't. I don't know about that company. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure on the specifics of that. Okay. Now it's a, it's a beautiful card. And I mean, I, I I've seen the the black and white video of 17 year old Pele bursting on the world scene and scoring two goals in the World Cup final in, in 1958. And and frankly, I didn't even know that there was a card for like a Pele rookie card from 1958, which is which is really cool. Um, 
kind of a random question for you here. A good friend of mine actually collects match covers, uh, including okay. sports match covers. So these aren't, you know, sports cards or stickers like we've seen, but like actual like matchbooks. And he's actually got a set of Brazil World Cup team match covers for every player from the 1958 team, including that Pele, hmm. uh, 17-year-old. I like. He, my friend has a much better idea of the market for match covers, but like, do you ever right. come across that? I'm, I'm just curious. Not that specifically. I mean, there are, yeah. there are certain, I mean, there's very unique collectibles out there, you know, and there's very rare collectibles out there, but a lot of times rarity doesn't translate to value because you got to have the other side of that equation, which is high desirability. And that's the tough thing to, uh, to dictate, right? I mean, I wish I knew that, you know, I wish I could say that I knew the market was going to do this 18 months ago because I would have loaded up on my I'd be retired right now. Right. I would have loaded <laughs> up on Michael Jordan rookie cards and Pele rookie cards, you know, but that's what's interesting about what's going on right now is we had no idea. You know, we're not selling anything that people need to survive. You know, as we were as we were going into this, uh, you know, this unprecedented pandemic last spring, you know, we were tightening our belts like any other company, um, you know, preparing for a potential downturn and how are things going to turn out? So, you know, the fact that last May, um, you know, we had our, our auction that did, you know, 33% above our estimates when I was, you wow. know, we were just hold, hoping that we were going to hit estimates. Um, and then it, it just blew it out of the water and that, and unbeknownst to me, that was just the beginning of the, of the upturn that we saw uh, over the past 18 months. And it continues to, to rise. So, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it builds on itself. Um, there's a lot more people with every auction, there's more people getting involved and jumping into the market and having fun with it, investing and, 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 and just, you know, buying old cards that they love. In terms of soccer, do some countries have more demand for soccer collectibles than other countries? Uh, I would say absolutely. I mean, you know, um, you know, and those are the traditional soccer powers, right? I mean, you know, I, I think um, I think England is probably um, you know is probably the leader. I think there's, there's it's twofold. It's not just where soccer is popular, but it's also where collecting is popular. I think I think collecting is is something that's genetic. That you know, three to five percent of the population has this desire. There's a lot of reasons people collect, but you know, people collect to learn about history. People collect for for, you know, to mark off, you know, uh, for the sense of accomplishment to, to, to try and get a whole set and that type of thing. Um, some people collect is more of a, of an investment angle. Um, but, but a lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people, you know, just don't, don't see why other people collect or understand it. And so I think part of it's cultural. Um, so, you know, the United States certainly has that, uh, England certainly has that, um, Brazil, there are certainly collectors in Brazil and there's, there's collectors around the world. I shouldn't say it's, you know, but there, it is certainly in more, it, it's, it's predisposed that more people collect in some countries than others. And I think that's pretty unique. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. As far as current players, like what's the interest in collectibles for Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, for example? There's a lot of interest there. I mean, those guys are worldwide, known worldwide and known as as kings of the sports. Um, so, um, yeah, there's you know, they're certainly not being left behind. I mean, there's there's Ronaldo cards that are selling for well into six figures. His 2003 uh, Panini uh, rookie card, I think, sold for over 300,000. 
uh, recently. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then here in the United States, at least women's soccer's popular. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything out there collectible wise in, in women's soccer or the U S women's national team or any of the players? Um, card wise, I'm not sure on that. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure there are, um, yeah. but you know, as far as collectibles go, the stuff that I've seen that, you know, a, a lot of people really want, you know, the t- team signed jerseys, team signed yeah. balls and that type of stuff from those U S national teams in the world okay. cup. Yeah. Women's world cup. But uh, I haven't seen, I haven't seen big prices for cards for them. Okay. Is there anything else that you think would be good to mention this in terms of what's happening, where this might be headed moving forward? Uh, things you're excited about that we haven't discussed. Um, I think we covered a lot of it, you know, I mean, if I knew where it was heading, I'd be, you know, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be buying it myself. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I think it's an exciting time to be in this market because I've always loved this. This is what I you know, did as a kid. And I was able to turn a hobby into a career, but, but to see so many more people jumping in now and enjoying it and kind of validating a little bit, like I always thought this stuff, I always felt this stuff was undervalued. I mean, this is, this is really cool stuff. We had the opportunity to see Wayne Gretzky play and Michael Jordan play. And, you know, you have the opportunity to own, you know, maybe sneakers that Jordan wore in a game or, you know, Wayne Gretzky's jersey or hockey stick and that type of stuff. I always saw this stuff and it was like, and that's what, another thing that's interesting is, and I'll tell you this, you know, we sold, we sold Wayne Gretzky's rookie card, one of two, like I mentioned before, for nearly 1.4 million in December. In February, we had Wayne Gretzky's rookie jersey the jersey it's photo matched to his first game at Edmonton. Um, and that's sold for right at 600,000. Hmm. And, and to me, you know, I love them both and they're both really rare, but one of them was on Gretzky's back. You know, I mean, he wore that Jersey in a game to, to do the things that make him great, that make him a worldwide known name. And, and it seems weird to me that the, that the card would sell so much for so much more than the Jersey. And I think it's, it's just an evolution. I do think the Jersey will get there. I think uh, cards are a little bit easier for people to understand. Uh, They're more investable because they're more liquid. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think those, are a couple of the reasons why the cards sell for more, but, uh, but, you know, and I love them both. I love, I love all this stuff, but, but to me, I think the Jersey is, uh, is more unique and should be in that same closer to the 1.1.4 that the card sold for. Good stuff. Well, Chris Ivy is the co-founder and director of sports for heritage auctions. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Matthew Hoppy and Chris Ivey, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.